Welcome to a podcast from the rightdoctors.com, India's leading medical knowledge platform and a Google Launchpad digital health startup. Hello and good day to wherever you are joining us today. It is Monday, 15 March 2021. My name is Christian Lindmeier and I'm welcoming you to today's global COVID-19 press conference with a special focus on the first anniversary of the COVID-19 Solidarity Response Fund. Simultaneous translation is provided in the six official languages, Arabic, Chinese, French, English, Spanish, and Russian, as well as in Portuguese and Hindi. We have two special guests today. Uh, first of all, with us in the room here is Anil Soni from the WHO Foundation, the Chief Executive Officer, welcome. And we have Elizabeth Cousins, Chief Executive Officer from the UN Foundation Online. Hello to both of you. Now let me introduce you the other participants. Present in the room are Dr. Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus, WHO Director General, Dr. Mike Ryan, Executive Director of the WHO Health Emergencies Program, Dr. Maria Van Kerkhoff, Technical Lead on COVID-19, Dr. Maria Angela Simao, Assistant Director General for Access to Medicines and Health Products. We have Dr. Sumya Swaminathan, Chief Scientist, and Dr. Bruce Aylward, Special Advisor to the Director General and the Lead on ACT Accelerator. Online, we have Dr. Kate O'Brien, Director for Immunization Vaccines and Biologicals, um, Dr. Sosifal, Assistant Director General for Emergency Response, Dr. Michelle Yao, Director of Strategic Health Operations, and last but not least, Dr. Peter Ben-Emberek, WHO expert on food safety and zoonosis, and the international lead of the WHO convened global study of the origins on SARS-CoV-2. With this, let me hand over to the Director General for his opening remarks. Dr. Tedros. Thank you. Vielen Dank, Christian. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. I'd like to start by acknowledging that today marks 10 years since the start of the crisis in Syria. WHO continues to work on the ground with our partners to deliver services and supplies, protect public health, and to support a network of more than 1,700 health facilities. The conflict in Syria has brought a once highly effective health system to its knees. But tragically, it's not an isolated example. Syria is one of many crises around the world, from Myanmar to Yemen and Tigray in Ethiopia, where millions of people have been denied access to essential health services and where health facilities have been destroyed and health workers have been attacked and intimidated. This must stop. Now more than ever, health workers, health supplies, and health facilities must be supported, functioning, and serving all people. Now more than ever, parties to all conflicts must adhere to agreed international norms that protect health care. Since our last press conference on Friday, Several more countries have su suspended the use of AstraZeneca vaccines as a precautionary measure after reports of blood clots in people who had received the vaccine from two batches produced in Europe. This does not necessarily mean these events are linked to vaccination, but it's routine practice to investigate them. And it shows that the surveillance system works and that effective controls are in place. WHO Advisory Committee on Vaccine Safety has been reviewing the available data, is in close contact with the European Medicines Agency, and will meet tomorrow. But the greatest threat that most countries face now is lack of access to vaccines. Almost every day, I receive calls from senior political leaders around the world asking when their country will receive their vaccines through COVAX. Some of them are 
frustrated. And I understand why. They see some of the world's richest countries buying enough vaccines to immunize their populations several times over, while their own countries have nothing. We welcome the commitment by the Quad countries to deliver up to one billion doses of vaccine in the Asia-Pacific region through COVAX. And we continue to call for all countries to work in solidarity to ensure that vaccination begins in all countries within the first 100 days of this year. We have 26 days left. No country can simply vaccinate its way out of this pandemic alone. We're all in this together. Today marks the one-year anniversary of the launch of the COVID-19 Solidarity Response Fund, an unprecedented collaboration between WHO, the United Nations Foundation, the Swiss Philanthropy Foundation, and many other partners to generate funds for the pandemic response, including WHO's strategic preparedness and response plan. Thanks to the generosity of individuals and corporations, over the past year, we have raised 242 million US dollars from more than 662,000 dollars from persons. This is the first time in its history that WHO has received donations from the general public to every individual and organization that contributed, I say thank you. Your donations made a significant impact all over the world. With your support, we shipped more than 250 million items of personal protective equipment, provided technical support to hundreds of labs, supplied more than 250 million COVID-19 tests, coordinated the deployment of more than 180 teams and missions, delivered oxygen and supported over 12,000 intensive care beds to prevent health systems from being overwhelmed, provided training through openwho.org, which has more than 5 million registrations for courses that are delivered in more than 50 languages from Albanian to Zulu and much more. But as you know, the pandemic is not over. Three weeks ago, we launched the Strategic Preparedness and Response Plan for 2021, which outlines how WHO will support countries in responding to the pandemic and the resources we need to do it. The plan calls for a total requirement of 1.96 billion US dollars, close to 2 billion US dollars, and we thank all countries and organizations who have already committed funds. We are now inviting everyone to support the 2021 Strategic Preparedness and Response Plan through the Solidarity Response Fund. The money collected will be used to suppress transmission, save lives, fight the infodemic, and accelerate equitable access to vaccines, diagnostics, and therapeutics. When we launched the Solidarity Response Fund one year ago, the United Nations Foundation played a vital role in making it happen. Today, it's my great honor to welcome Elizabeth Cousins, the President and Chief Executive Officer of the United Nations Foundation. Elizabeth, thank you so much for your support and partnership over the past year and for everything your team and yourself has done. You have the floor. Thank you so much, Dr. Tedros. It is wonderful to join you, Anil, and your colleagues as we mark a year since the launch of the COVID-19 Solidarity Response Fund and look to its future. When WHO called on the United Nations Foundation just over one year ago, you asked us to help create a tool to mobilize global support with the same ferocity as the virus that was beginning to sweep the world. 
You knew that the scale of support would need to exceed anything any of us had ever done before, and that it would require all of us, every country, every sector, every individual to play their part. You also knew that fast funds and flexible funds were needed most of all. Indeed, every emergency, even ordinary ones, teach us that every single time. We were honored to answer your call. And working with WHO, the Swiss Philanthropy Foundation, and fiduciary partners all over the world, we created this novel flexible fund in less than a month to enable individual, corporate, and organization donors alike to give unrestricted support to the global pandemic response being led by the World Health Organization. $242 million has since been raised from more than 662,000 individuals, corporations, and organizations from 190 countries, making the COVID-19 Solidarity Response Fund possibly the most diverse pooled fund in history. The hundreds of thousands of individual donors who answered the call gave whatever they could, whether $3 or $300. Companies rallied to give millions. Private donors from Italy, India, Germany, Kenya, Japan, Brazil, virtually every country, many who didn't have much to give, found in the fund a way to do their part against this unprecedented global threat. Online gamers ran live stream marathons generating hundreds of thousands of dollars. Celebrities, fitness gurus, musicians, artists, athletes, children, even the minions joined this worldwide effort to support WHO and its partners in working to prevent detect and respond to COVID-19. And the fund was fast. In just six weeks, we raised more than $200 million. And to date, the fund has dispersed more than 226, making it one of the top donors to WHO's COVID-19 response. Every gift, large and small, was also moved out the door quickly to fill critical gaps. And the fund's agility quickly became one of its superpowers, essential to fighting this novel and rapidly unfolding pandemic. The fund's resources were used to repair the global supply chain for things like personal protective equipment, testing supplies, and medical equipment for well over 100 countries. It helped infection prevention control for migrants, refugees, and other vulnerable people, helped train frontline personnel in multiple languages, seed early research into treatments and vaccines, and as you noted, helped fight the world fight against the infodemic, the corrosive spread of bad science and misinformation, so that people could get trusted evidence-based information on which they and their communities needed to rely. The fund has also revolved resources where possible to enable those gifts to have even greater impact. But for us, possibly the most powerful impact of the fund has been its demonstration of solidarity. The COVID-19 pandemic is a global threat that will only be overcome by global action, but it isn't the last such threat we will face. All of the good the fund has done, that's come from people. Those 662,000 people in 190 countries, those 100 plus companies and organizations, the thousands of professionals working through WHO, its partners, and on the front lines of public health around the world, the citizens who mask, distance, and protect. That should all be an incredible source of hope and of confidence. Confidence that we can do big, bold, transformative things when we act together. Confidence that through global solidarity will not only conquer this virus, but be able to shape a healthier, fairer, and better future. At a time of temptations to nationalism and polarization in too many places, the fund showed that collective action works and that we are stronger when we act together. The United Nations Foundation has been honored to be in this fight with all of you as we work to bring the acute phase of this pandemic to an end and set our sights on recovery. And we look very forward to being your partner in the future. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Elizabeth. And thank you once again to you and your team for your support. And we look forward to our ongoing partnership. In May last year, I announced the creation of the WHO Foundation, a new independent body to generate resources for the work of WHO from sources we have not accessed before. The creation of the WHO Foundation was part of the WHO transformation underway. Its goal is to raise $1 billion US dollars for global health over the next three years. The WHO Foundation will play a leading role in running the Solidarity Response Fund in this next phase. And it's my honor today to welcome Anil Soni, the first Chief Executive Officer of the WHO Foundation. Anil. Welcome, and you have the floor. Thank you, Dr. Tedros. 
Thank you, Dr. Tedros. As Elizabeth made clear, the opportunity to act in solidarity one year ago gave people hope. And this report on the impact of that generosity is intended to likewise give hope and inspire continued action. The arrival of the first generation of safe and effective COVID-19 vaccines has proved that there's a light at the end of the tunnel, that the world will defeat this pandemic, but it also coincides with a new set of challenges, including the pace at which current variants are evolving. Strengthening regional surveillance tools and systems, including the capacity of labs, will be critical to scaling up the detection of variants and staying one step ahead of the virus. But the longer it takes to roll out vaccines across every country in the world, and not just those that can afford them, the more of a risk we face that these variants will continue to progress, and the more they progress, the more strained our health systems will become, resulting in supply shortages and diminished capacity of hospitals, for example, to provide critical supplies like medical oxygen. In parallel, there is much to be done to improve understanding and trust within communities on vaccines and to ensure we have the tools and systems to disseminate the latest health guidance and counter the misinformation that threatens to undermine vaccination efforts. All of that to say, there is equal urgency today to act together to fight COVID-19 as there was one year ago. And today we can better quantify the cost of inaction. With 120 million confirmed cases and 2.65 million deaths, this disease has reached into all of our lives. No community has been spared. And there is now a dramatic contrast, as Dr. Tedros said earlier, between the confidence of some countries who look to life getting back to normal by the end of the year and the desperation of others who do not have access to the same life-saving tools. As Dr. Tedros says repeatedly, this pandemic will not be over anywhere until it is over everywhere. There is a moral imperative to act in solidarity. There's also a clear economic rationale. The International Chamber of Commerce concluded that even with high vaccine coverage in wealthy countries, restricted coverage elsewhere could cost the economies of those same wealthy countries more than $2 trillion in 2021 alone. In other words, there is a compelling return on investment for companies to act to end the pandemic globally. With this moral and economic argument, we are appealing now for the private sector to redouble its efforts and to give to the WHO through the Solidarity Response Fund to roll out vaccines, to conduct the necessary surveillance on variants and the pharmacovigilance on vaccines and therapies, to support countries in stopping the spread, to tackle the mental health impacts of COVID-19, and to continue to provide accurate scientific guidance to shape national responses. We appreciate that many companies, especially small businesses, are struggling to stay afloat, but others have seen their profits and market capitalization increase in the last year. If you are a CEO of a company with resources to share, please give. Please support the WHO's leadership to fight and end COVID-19. Please act in solidarity with everyone in this world. Maria, the WHO's technical lead for COVID-19, is sitting by my side, and she told me that her 11-year-old niece in North Carolina raised $1,300 for the Solidarity Response Fund. She gave what she could. We ask you to do the same. The WHO Foundation was created for this purpose to mobilize more support for the life-saving work of the WHO. Today, we are focused on explaining the impact of private contributions and appealing to companies to give to power the urgent work of the WHO this year. We also want to give individuals, anyone, anywhere, the power to pitch in. And we will be sharing in the coming weeks new platforms to do so, including a campaign to help meet the immediate needs of countries for medical oxygen, where more than a million cylinders are needed each day in low- and middle-income countries, and a campaign for vaccine equity, building on the initial focus of the WHO this year on vaccinating healthcare workers. Thank you, Dr. Tedros, for the life-saving work of the WHO. And back to you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Anil. And I look forward to our continued partnership in the weeks, months, and years ahead. And as the first CEO of WHO Foundation, I wish you all the very best. And I have already seen that the start is excellent. Thank you so much. Of course, WHO's other work has continued all around the world, even during this pandemic. And I would like to acknowledge the many donors who continue to support our program budget for 2020 and 2021. Earlier today, 
For example, I had the pleasure to accept a fully flexible contribution of 10 million US dollars from the state of Qatar. Shukran Jazilan Qatar. Flexible financing like this is critical for WHO to deliver on our mission to promote health, keep the world safe, and serve the vulnerable. Christian, back to you. Thank you very much, Dr. Tedros. With this, I open the floor for questions. We already have a good list of uh, queries. Um, but if you want to get onto the queue, please use the raise your hand icon. We'll start with Kai Kupferschmidt from Nature. Kai, please unmute yourself. <laughs> Thanks, Christian. Um, it's still science. Um, so I just wanted to ask about the, um, the, the signal from the AstraZeneca vaccine and the decision by countries to suspend their use. I mean, we all, a lot of people have said this is purely precautionary. At the same time, we know that that decision is going to cost lives because it slows down vaccinations. Can you just give an idea about, you know, what the, what the balancing act is here and whether you have any idea about how serious this really is and whether it is the right decision at this point to, you know, to, to incur these very real costs of stopping the vaccine? Thank you very much. Um, uh, Dr. Simao, please. Hi, Kai. Thank you for the question. Um, uh, it, I, I think the first thing that you have to notice, and I, I think we mentioned this on Friday, is that we do have pharmacovigilance systems in place. So we are able to detect with any new vaccine and old vaccines, we need to follow up any adverse event that follows immunization. And this is not, not a new thing. This health systems know how to do it, and we have a very sensitive way of, uh, of detecting early, early warning signs, or to, so to speak. We are saying this is a precautionary measure because uh, we are still investigating. WHO is working very closely with EMA. EMA has an a, a expert committee working on this. And we are also working with the national regulatory authorities in Europe and on other regions in assessing not only this, this uh, there's news more recent about thromboembolic uh, potential links with uh, AstraZeneca vaccines, but all adverse events from other vaccines as well. WHO's Global Advisory Committee on Vaccine Safety is meeting tomorrow. They, they, it's an expert group highly uh, expert, with high expertise on vaccine safety. They have been assessing the data that's available since last week when the first reports came, and it will be, be meeting tomorrow to, to to do a, a more thorough investigation. And meanwhile, EMA is also meeting tomorrow and on Thursday, so most likely during this week we will have more news uh, on the more in-depth assessment of the different cases that were, were uh, reported so far. What we can say that so far it doesn't look like it's, it's uh, there are more cases than would be expected for the period in the general population, you know, because people get sick or people die all the time. And what we have seen so far from the preliminary data is that there, there is not an increasing number of cases of thromboembolic events in, for example, in, in Europe and the UK, only more than 17 million doses of AstraZeneca uh, uh, vaccines were administered so far. So the recommendation at this point is that the risk benefit of not vaccinating using AstraZeneca vaccines and other vaccines outweigh the risk of the COVID infection, which we know has a, a significant impact on, on people with severe disease, hospitalization, and death. Maybe Dr. Sumia wants to complement. No, looks like we're good, and apologies, this was the question from Kai Kufferschmidt from Science. We'll move to the next one, and that's Agnes Pedrero from AFP. Agnes, please unmute yourself. Yes, 
Yes, hello everybody. Good evening. Uh, um, I wanted to uh, follow up on uh, the AstraZeneca vaccine. I wanted to ask you, um, after on Friday you say that uh, you recommend to, to continue uh, to, to vaccinate with the AstraZeneca vaccine. How much are you concerned that uh, the European countries haven't followed uh, your uh, advice? And uh, for tomorrow, is uh, the uh, is the experts are they going to look only the the batches of the vaccine produced in Europe or also the ones produced um, in India and South Korea? Thank you. Thank you, Agnes, and let's just make it clear. Uh, we have not yet, we, although we are in touch with the national regulatory authorities from other regions, we have yet to see similar reports on thromboembolic events and uh, the AstraZeneca uh, uh, made in Europe, made in Europe. Uh, we, so far, we only have news about uh, specific batches in Europe. Are we concerned about the, the suspension? We, we understand these are precautionary measures. Some countries have suspended the use. Some countries have suspended some batches. No, but this is very clear, and I, I'd like to say this to, to countries from other regions that are not Europe, the, the, the vaccines so far are from European manufacturing, not the vaccines that are provided through the COVAX facility, which are made in Korea and, and South Korea, Republic of Korea and India. So, so I, we, I think we will need to wait until we, the, the expert committee, WHO's expert committee has had a chance to, to meet and assess the, all the data that's available in, in tandem or in conjunction with the, with uh, the information that's also coming out from EMA and the advisory committee from EMA. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dr. Simao. With this, we move to Jeremy Lange from RFE. Jeremy, please unmute yourself. Yes, thank you so much. Um, the question is in line with the previous questions, I'm afraid. Uh, I was just wondering if you if you are concerned that uh, the that what is going on with the AstraZeneca vaccine in Europe might fuel uh, further vaccine skepticism uh, among the population, we see already that uh, some people are refusing the AstraZeneca vaccine. So are you concerned that it might trigger some more uh, refusal for this vaccine? Thank you, Jeremy. Jeremy, uh, Dr. Sumia Swaminathan, please. Thank you. Thank you for that uh, question. And uh, this is something, obviously, that we are tracking and following, um, literally on an hour-by-hour basis. And we're looking, working uh, with the EMA, with our network, the uh, Global Advisory Committee on Vaccine Safety, our expert group that has been following right from the beginning, since vaccination started, all the adverse event uh, reports that are coming in from different countries. And uh, if you remember, there was a um, an initial scare about uh, excess deaths amongst the elderly that was reported from Norway, and then it was uh, clarified that it was not really excess deaths, it was just the normal expected rate of deaths. So again, you know, when you talk about adverse events, these events um, are things which happen to people. Uh, you, you know, people do get thromboembolic events, uh, pulmonary embolisms, you know, and people die uh, on a regular, uh, on every day. So the question really is the linkage with the vaccine. And this is why we need to look at all of the data. The experts are looking at the data. And so far, we do not find an association between these events and the vaccine, because the rates at which these events have occurred in the vaccinated group are in fact, less than what you would expect in the general population at the same time. Whenever a decision is made on using uh, a vaccine, you know, the safety is of utmost importance. And one looks at the benefits versus the risks. Um, nothing, no drug or vaccine could ever be 100% safe. Okay, you we could have something that happens one in a million, but then you need to look at What's the benefit of protecting people against a disease that's killing millions? 
against the potential risks. And this is being looked at very carefully, and we will be learning about these vaccines. We have to accept the fact that these vaccines have been in use for a few months now, even though they're so rapidly scaled up. We have 300 million people already who have received at least one dose. And uh, the DG said something on Friday, which we need to remind ourselves about, which is that 2.6 million people have died, at least 2.6 million people have died of COVID-19 disease. And so far, of the 300 million doses that have been given to people across the world, of course, using different vaccines, we, there is no documented death that's been linked to a COVID vaccine. So I, I think that while we need to continue to be very closely monitoring this, we do not want people to panic. Um, and we would, for the time being, recommend that countries continue vaccinating with AstraZeneca, but we will have more updates uh, tomorrow at, or at any time when, when there is a, a change in this recommendation. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dr. Swaminathan. With this, we move to the next, and that's Jamie Keaton from AP. Jamie, please unmute yourself. Uh, hi, everyone. I actually have to tell you that uh, Jeremy asked my question, so thank you very much. Thank you very much for pulling your hand back, so to say. Then we move to Bayram Altok uh, from Anadolu News. Bayram, please unmute yourself. I thank you, Tarek, for uh, taking my question, but my question was already taken as well. Thank you for uh, your time. <laughs> well, thank you. Then can I ask you all to look at your hands and whoever had AstraZeneca questions, please pull your hand down, makes it easier for us. Um, then we'll try with uh, Gunilla von Hall from Svenska Darkbladet. Uh, Gunilla, please unmute yourself. Uh, yes, thank you. I had a question on AstraZeneca too, but I have another one too, and that is uh, on um, the so-called um, COVID passports uh, or um, digital green passes that the EU will uh, talk about, discuss later this week. I wanted to know what the WHO position are on these um, passports, vaccination passports, how can they be made um, so they're not discriminatory? Thanks. Mike Ryan, please. Okay, I'll begin. Uh, some of you may wish to uh, to, to supplement. Uh, yeah, I, if, if we can separate here in our minds the concepts of digitally regist digital registration of vaccination, which WHO believes is a very positive thing within national health systems. In fact, digitalization of health information in general and personal health records is a potential way forward to better primary health care and better integration of health services. So we're working very, very closely through uh, SUMI's leadership of the Digital Health Initiative with Bernardo Mariano here and many, many partners um, on advancing that whole agenda. Obviously, within that, uh, the development of uh, e-certificates for COVID-19 vaccination represents a, 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 a very uh, and potentially very useful instrument for governments to use themselves for managing the registration of vaccination in country, and that allows better monitoring of vaccination and batches and coverage and many other things. Um, and to that end, uh, some of you may explain uh, where the, um, uh, the objectives of, of that lie in setting the global standards for that, but also uh, being able to advance that uh, whole idea of electronic health records. With regard to what a certification of vaccination can allow you to do, that is, at national level or international level, and the use of a, a certification of vaccination which allows you to travel or allows you to carry out certain activities like attend a restaurant or go to school or attend university. We have to be uh, exceptionally careful because right now we're dealing with a tremendously inequitous situation in the world where the likelihood of you been offered or getting a vaccine is uh, very much to do with the country you live in, uh, very much to do with uh, the level of wealth, the level of influence uh, that you or your government has on global markets. 
uh, and therefore the Emergency Committee of WHO have made it clear in their recommendations to the Director-General that at this time, at the present time, the requirement for certification of vaccination as a requirement for international travel is not justified as vaccination is not widely enough available and is inequitably distributed throughout the world. Um, that is not to say that in a situation where vaccine is more widely available, WHO is working <clears throat> on um, um, plans to be able to provide a, a global registry of public keys which could be used as a way of smoothing information flow between jurisdictions regarding vaccination history. Not as a way of collecting data on people, but as a way of providing a process of trust between governments regarding key information regarding vaccination status. But that, is, that must follow the appropriate policies. We need vaccination policies that don't create in themselves inequity. And we need to be very, very careful that the process of certifying vaccination does not result in personal freedoms or human rights being impeded uh, in any way that is not justified. Uh, and uh, Sumia mentioned before the risk-benefit issue here also applies. Uh, there are potential benefits from having certification of vaccination, but there are also potential downsides uh, because uh, we have to understand that at the centre of this there is personal choice. Uh, there, is, uh, um, there is the issue of mandating anything in health requires a very, very strong justification for that mandate. Uh, and then whether or not someone has the right to do certain things after vaccination, again, requires deep thought. There are ethical uh, and human rights issues at the centre of this as well. So WHO is working uh, very much now around the policies we're going to need in order to manage this. Each and every government may take a slightly different view on this, depending on what proportion of their population is actually vaccinated. But I think it does nothing more than actually highlight, highlight the deep inequitous situation we're in now with the distribution of vaccine. Somia, you may want to add on the... Please go ahead. Thank you, Mike. I think you've addressed the larger issues of how these certificates uh, you know, are proposed to be used by countries and as long as we have shortage of supplies across the world there's an inequitable distribution as Mike says um, it would only increase the inequities between people if we started using it in ways that restrict um, certain activities by people who are not vaccinated but what let me say what WHO is going to do and which is uh, towards building digital health infrastructure in countries and particularly in the low middle income countries um, and this is a, a focus of our global strategy of digital health, to move towards more digital health systems. And that is having a proof of vaccination. You know, we have um, children in, in countries, every child has a vaccination card that the mother keeps, and it's a paper card in most countries. And this can often get lost or destroyed or damaged. And so having a digital certificate on a mobile phone would uh, be an advantage to having you know, a paper certificate. It may take some countries time to move to that, but we think that building the system using COVID as an example could actually help national immunization programs move into uh, the digital uh, era. So what we are doing is working with uh, partners. We have 180 uh, people working on this from uh, representing member states and you know, other uh, agencies that are working actually to develop the standards that would facilitate a, a, a digital certificate of vaccination that would be interoperable. So that if you travel from country A to country B, your, uh, the certificate could still be read by the system there and it would still be valid. It would also help for the individual to have a record that they could keep with them. As I said, you know, the paper can always be lost. And, um, and finally, it would provide uh, an, an opportunity also to build a global system of um, sharing uh, this kind of data using, as Mike uh, described, uh, a, a public database of trusted public keys. So every country would develop their own, um, uh, they would put forward their uh, agency that would be the agency that's uh, been um, uh, given that responsibility for the country and then WHO would authorize it. And we would, of course, also look at which vaccines would, you know, would go into this. It would be vaccines approved by the WHO and so on. So it would bring in a lot of uh, rigor and standards into this process. So over the next few weeks and months, we'll be working with 
mainly with our member states, to discuss how this could be implemented, and we will provide technical support to those countries that need uh, some capacity um, support to, in order to implement this. And of course, there are many countries that are already advanced in planning this, but the idea of having this, the global standards developed by WHO so, so that all countries will align on this, and um, we need to move towards you know, this kind of interoperable systems. We start with, with uh, COVID-19 uh, immunization vaccination, but it will extend to many other uh, areas. Thank you. Thank you very much. And uh, Dr. Kate O'Brien wants to chime in too. Thank you. Yes, I just wanted to add the um, uh, and one last point on this is that um, in the in the consideration of uh, any requirement that might be considered about uh, vaccination for travel either within a country or across borders, um, one of the sort of underlying principles would be that a vaccine would have a very substantial effect on. Um, on infection status, not just disease, but on infection status and transmission to other people. And I think we've commented before that, um, first of all, our expectation that these vaccines are going to have the kind of magnitude of impact on transmission that we're seeing as the magnitude on disease is, is not very likely to be met. Um, and secondly, the amount of information that we have about what their uh, impact is on transmission is still very early and very incomplete. And so when we also consider what the intent would be of um, considering the uh, vaccination as, as a, uh, a requirement for travel across an international border, there are also some issues around what the vaccines actually do and whether or not they could deliver on that intent. And then finally, you know, we don't um, also have vaccines that have been evaluated for people under 18 years of age or 16 years of age at this point. Um, so when you when you consider the full nature of the potential benefit, the risks that have been laid out really well here of uh, what it would actually imply, um, I think that those are just some other considerations in what that benefit risk analysis is. Thank you very much all for these answers. And now we move on to Ashwin Bakshinge from the uh, Observer Times in India. Ashwin, please unmute yourself. Uh, thank you for consideration for my question. As per Dr. Swaminathan, Madam statement, we are going to see the emergence of improved vaccines into 2022. Is this implies to a regular booster vaccination against the COVID-19 disease? as virus mutations occur periodically. How the regular booster vaccinations, financing, funding, going to be keep momentum of vaccination for COVID-19 disease? Thank you. Dr. Swaminathan, please. Thank you for that question. I can start and maybe Kate would might want to come in. So we, we're already thinking ahead. We are planning for all these different uh, possibilities. And we've seen in the last few months the emergence of variants. It was not entirely unexpected, but some of the variants uh, are of concern. As you know, WHO has a nomenclature now of uh, how to define these variants of interest. And then variants of concern are those that are based on uh, changes in transmission capacity changes in the clinical features or changes in their uh, way they respond to drugs or vaccines. And so uh, because of the observation that some of the vaccines seem to have a lower efficacy against uh, particularly the B1351 uh, variant uh, that was described in South Africa, scientists and companies have already started thinking about the next version of the vaccine that might incorporate those mutations. And luckily, some of these platforms that are being used now, the mRNA platform and the viral vectors, vector platforms, allow very rapid changes in the vaccine composition. And so we are working with, um, with a number of scientific expert groups around the world, as well as with the regulatory agencies, to both study the, the science as it is changing and evolving. And it is important that uh, to note that we do not have all the information currently to make those decisions that you were just asking about. 
you know, whether boosters will be needed and how often and whether the boosters will be new vaccines. Um, those are still questions that need to be, to be answered. Uh, we need many more, uh, we need information on the duration of protection of existing vaccines. We still need to see whether the existing vaccines are able to prevent severe disease and death even amongst people infected with the variants. And it, it, it is possible that that could be the case. And there are many vaccines in clinical development still using a whole host of different platforms. Some of those vaccines may be more effective. The inactivated vaccines which use the whole virus, for example, which have all the proteins of the virus, potentially could, are they bet, you know, more effective against the variants? These are questions that need to be answered. But the COVAX um, facility and the COVAX partners are already thinking about these future scenarios and preparing for them. So yes, we are uh, now in the process of developing a strategy from 21 going through 2022 to keep in mind the fact that, first of all, we would need to vaccinate large segments of the population across the world. So we do need to plan for those additional doses that are going to be needed. As you know, the, the budget for COVAX to date only accounts for doses up to the end of 2021. And it, we, want, we, we think we, it'll have to keep going in 2022, plus looking at these uh, new scenarios and planning for those. So this is a work in progress. Certainly, we will let you know as things progress. Um, but as of now, there are different scenarios, options that we need to consider as, as we plan for the future. But uh, suffice it to say that WHO is aware of all these options. We are working with a number of different expert groups, you know, ranging from what Maria has described uh, on the genomics, on tracking of these uh, variants, looking at the prevalence in different countries. And, and also it's important that countries, as they roll out vaccines, try to collect data uh, to see because it's important to document both the effectiveness and the safety of vaccines. We've spoken a lot about safety today, but effectiveness is also important uh, to document. Uh, I don't know if Kate wants to add anything. I think we have Dr. Yeah. Van Kerkhove. Oh, Kate, Kate, you on? Hi there. Thanks. I, um, so I just want, I wanted to add just a couple of things to that. I also want to emphasize how early the information is. And I'll, I'll give you an example by, people probably wonder what we mean when we say that. Um, as we get more information, the very first observations um, are often adjusted for new information that comes. And the example I'll give now is that with the Novavax vaccine, um, which was tested in part in South Africa against um, uh, at, at a time when the, the variant that was initially found there was circulating, uh, there was also some information from that study that being infected previously with uh, COVID did not confer protection against being infected with the variant. With more data coming in, in fact, that doesn't seem to be holding up. It looks like if you were previously infected that you do have protection um, uh, to some large degree against the, the variant. So I wanna emphasize that as Sumia was sort of giving, um, providing a reply about whether or not we need boosters, whether the vaccines need to be adjusted, whether we'll go to multi-strain vaccines, these are all decisions and, and uh, that will have to be grounded on more information as it comes in from a number of different places around the world over time in a number of different age groups. And that's exactly what vaccine policies and vaccine research should do. It should adapt to the information as it comes in and will continue to um, optimize the vaccine program and the policies about how we use the vaccines that are in the portfolio, how we use the vaccines that are in our sort of quiver of arrows to their greatest impact, even while additional research continues to continue to optimize the products themselves. The, and then the second thing I just wanted to say is that we don't have any evidence um, to say that for any variant, or any vaccine combined with the variant that the vaccines do not work. It's really a question of at what magnitude they're working. 
um, there, there is really no, no product right now where we would say this simply does not work at all against a variant. It's not the way the immune system works. It's not an all or none phenomenon. Um, and it's really much more about the magnitude of the, the effectiveness of these products. Um, and that does vary according to age um, and other factors. And the most important thing here is that as these vaccines are rolling out, this is the time when transmission really needs to be driven down. The lower the transmission is, the less likely it is that there will be emergence of variants. And that's just um, a common sense, um, but a very important thing that we need to keep doing. It's not the time to take our foot off the pedal on any of the other interventions that are in place right now while we're getting as much vaccine out as possible and protecting people. Thank you. And this was Dr. Kate O'Brien, Director for Immunization Vaccines and Biologicals. And uh, we have Dr. Van Kerkhoff to add. Thanks. Just very briefly to cover a little bit on this, the system that we have in place to monitor these changes in the virus. So Sumi has talked about it. You've heard me talk about it a lot. Um, it's really important that everyone out there understands that there is a very robust system globally that is looking, that is tracking this virus that is looking to not only find where there are cases so that we could take appropriate public health action so that we prevent the spread of the virus, but we're also looking at any detailed changes in the sequence of the virus itself. Um, and this is done through genetic sequencing, uh, epidemiologic surveillance in countries to look at trends in incidents going up, going down, if there's anything that's happening unusual to make sure that there is uh, robust uh, sequencing that is happening around the world in many countries. And we know that many countries don't have sequencing capacities. So we are working through our regional offices and the regional platforms that have been set up to increase genomic sequencing around the world, um, leveraging systems like the flu system that exists worldwide that has 150, that has labs in 150 countries, to leverage systems like HIV, TB, polio, to make sure that the countries that have labs that can sequence for other pathogens can also sequence for SARS-CoV-2 too, because we need eyes and ears on the changes of these in these viruses. Any of these changes need to be evaluated in a transparent and a comprehensive and a robust manner. And what we are looking at right now are variants of interest as well as variants of concern. There are three variants of concern that WHO is tracking with partners around the world. You've heard us speak about those. And as Kate has said, the vaccines still work against these virus variants. But we're also tracking a number of variants of interest, um, which are being identified in countries. There are a number of studies that are underway to look at transmissibility, look at severity, and we don't yet know if some of those will become variants, va these variants of interest will become variants of concern. I mention this because it's important that there's a process in place to check. And we are working with labs, we are working with our R&D blueprint for epidemics, our animal model working groups, we're working with CEPI, we're working with so many different groups around the world that are helping us do the studies in real time so that we can determine if any of these changes mean there may be a change in diagnostics or a change in therapeutics or a change in vaccines. And so the proper decisions can be made based on data. So these systems are in place, they're being strengthened around the world, um, and it depends on collaboration. It depends on the good work of scientists and public health professionals, lab technicians, bioinformat uh, people who do bioinformatics and phylogenetics, um, epidemiologists. It's a, it's a multidisciplinary approach to assess each of these variants to determine their importance. And so that is something that is ongoing, um, and it is something that WHO is working hard to coordinate around the world to make sure that any change that we see in the virus if it has a change in the way our countermeasures work, including our countermeasures of public, public health and social measures, we will take decisions to adjust accordingly. So, so far, of the variants of concern that are circulating around the world, the public health and social measures work against reducing transmission. The infection prevention and control measures that are in place work against reducing transmission. Vaccines work. So it is important that we, we take this do-it-all approach, including vaccination. I do want to say that in the last week, we have had an increase, an 11% increase in transmission across the world. Five of six WHO regions has seen an increase in transmission. It is not the time to let up. We have to continue to do everything that we can 
uh, including all of the individual le level measures, the community level measures, everything that we can to drive transmission down. If we allow this virus to spread, if we give it an opportunity, it will. Adding vaccines and vaccinations where they can be used is an important tool in addition to the public health and social measures. So please continue to follow the local recommendations. Please make sure you keep your distance, you wear your mask, you wash your hands, you practice respiratory etiquette, you work from home if you can. Do everything that you can to limit your exposure to this virus. And if you get infected, the virus stops with you. So there's a lot that we can continue to do, and it's worth mentioning because we're seeing an increase in transmission. So we cannot let up our guard. Thank you very much, all. And with this, we move to Carmen Pound from Politico. Carmen, please unmute yourself. Yes, hi. Thank you so much for giving me the floor. Um, I have one, two questions, if I may, since uh, some of my colleagues had similar questions earlier. Um, on COVAX, uh, one of the things was relating to the healthcare workers, are there enough healthcare workers in some of the countries where um, the vaccine is being rolled out to help with the vaccination drive? We've seen, you know, in countries like the US that um, they had to bring back retired doctors and nurses to vaccinate. So I was wondering what, um, you know, what that looks like in some of the countries rolling out vaccines. And the second one is, is something that I, I remember Dr. Bruce Aylward uh, speaking to about uh, before which is countries like Canada and the UK getting supplies from the Serum Institute of India. Um, have you had any signal so far that that might decrease on the short term, the supply of vaccines that COVAX is getting from the Institute? Thank you. And thank you. Let me give this to Dr. Aylwood. Yeah. Whoops. Thanks for the question. On the first part of it, Kate may want to come in as, as she's close to the delivery and the rollout in specific countries uh, with respect to some of the challenges that are being uh, found there. Um, as we are, but remember, as we are rolling out and prioritizing first uh, the healthcare workers, that's a relatively small proportion of the population in most countries. So there's been a lot of work in advance of the receipt of the vaccines to make sure that they've identified the healthcare workers necessary to be able to, to uh, manage the rollout and the additional personnel. So you'll remember on some of the previous uh, um, uh, press conferences we've had, we've been talking about the readiness work that's been done in all countries. Uh, and if we look at the 92, what we call AMC countries in, uh, in, uh, that are part of COVAX, they have been working across a nine-point national uh, vaccine deployment, deployment plan. And that includes, of course, making sure that they've got the healthcare workforce necessary to roll it out. Um, to date, we have not heard of that as a limiting uh, factor and the ability of countries to take full advantage of the products that they're able to get through COVAX. Now, what we're more concerned about, and I'm sure uh, Kate may speak to this, as as we get into the later part of 2021, when we're dealing with much larger volumes of vaccines or much larger proportion of the population, um, it will be a challenge in terms of the health uh, care workforce needed to be able to deliver these uh, products at scale. Um, on the second issue that was raised, um, as uh, we've discussed on previous uh, um, um, press conferences, there's uh, a number of suppliers and sites that are particularly important to the COVAX facility. One of them, of course, is the Serum Institute of India. And uh, this facility is uh, committed to supplying the needs, um, or part of the needs, obviously, of the government of India, and then preferentially the COVAX facility as well. Now, due to the challenges in supply globally, um, many, many uh, entities have looked to all producers around the world, um, and whether individual countries, whether companies, whether others have uh, reached out to all suppliers and tried to look for excess vaccines. And the Serum Institute of India has been no uh, different. They've been uh, approached by um, many countries for bilateral, both uh, bilateral deals, both high income and, and upper, lower middle income countries, as well as uh, other entities. So we are aware of that. In terms of actual supplies, no, we don't know. These are contractual relationships uh, between uh, companies and countries. Um, so at this point, what we wanted to flag and what we said previously, I think I might have been misquoted there, was that we are concerned that um, there is uh, 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 um, 
in, in the effort to try and ensure every country has got sufficient vaccines or the vaccines to meet their perceived need, they're uh, making demands on suppliers that would normally supply COVAX. At this point, we do know that COVAX and India are being prioritized by the Serum Institute, and we're grateful for that, and we hope that continues. Thank you. And we have, we have Dr. O'Brien to come in. Yeah, just a, a little bit more on the um, on the healthcare workforce required to deliver vaccines. Um, we're looking at this very carefully. Countries are looking at this very carefully. And as um, as Dr. Elward indicated, the short term is really not the issue. Um, the short term, where doses are starting to come into countries, um, there's certainly capacity for the program uh, as as sort of uh, as an entity to absorb the the scope that's needed to immunize healthcare workers and those at highest risk of severe disease and death what is really at question here is um, what will happen as the volume of doses increases through 2021 and into 2022 it's also in question the efficiency with which programs can deliver vaccines. How many people can a program design their program to move through the process um, in, a, in a day, for instance? And we're seeing a very broad range around that efficiency um, that is actually being experienced by countries. But what we also see is countries get really good at this. Um, they figure out in their own local context how best to form a team that can move people through an immunization center um, uh, with great efficiency. And uh, that changes over time, and it changes as learning occurs in that particular uh, sort of construct. I also want to just bring it back to what we were talking about before in the press conference is the role of electronic records. Um, even in high-income countries, there's still a lot of paper records being used, and that is uh, more time-consuming um, and less, certainly less efficient for the program and for people who are coming to be vaccinated. So all of the innovations that are out there to create efficiencies will help reduce the amount of health workforce that will be required um, to, to actually immunize um, in a program. And then it really was, is also going to depend on what the program looks like. Will we need to give booster doses? Um, will there be more vaccines that are single dose vaccines? So a lot of these are in play, but certainly over the course of the rest of this year and into 2022, um, the requirements for additional workforce, not all of whom need to be licensed healthcare workers. A lot of this is administrative staff um, flowing people through clinics and, and things like that um, will, will be needed. Thank you very much, Dr. Kate O'Brien, for this. Um, with this, we're coming to the end of our press briefing. I thank you all very much. And um, before I'm handing over to the Director General and to our special guests for the last words in case, um, let me remind everyone we will have uh, sent out the audio files and the DG remarks right after this briefing, and we'll have tomorrow morning the full transcript on our website. Let me ask um, Elizabeth Cousins from the UN Foundation for any final remarks, please. Thank you so much. Uh, two quick closing thoughts. First, just for anyone who is interested in more details about the COVID Solidarity Response Fund, there is a lot of detail online about how the funds were allocated and the impact that they had. And second, just to echo what so many have said already, there has been so much progress over the last year, but we're obviously not done. And we won't be done anywhere until we are done everywhere. So to echo Kate and others, this is not the time to take our foot off the pedal. And our experience over the last year shows what is possible. It shows how much solidarity is out there to overcome such an unprecedented challenge. So follow the science, build on the solidarity, and we will be able to see this essential work through in these critical months ahead. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Elizabeth Cousins. And now to Anil uh, Soni from the WHO Foundation. Well, I certainly echo what Elizabeth just said. Sitting through this press conference, it's clear that we have a lot of challenges to tackle together globally. And I'm also incredibly inspired by the work of my colleagues here at the WHO. So it reinforces what Elizabeth and I are trying to do with the COVID-19 Solidarity Response Fund, which is to reach out to everyone in the world and ask that you contribute to this important work. Thank you. Thank you both. And now for the final comments. Uh, first of all, for Dr. Ryan, and before we come to the Director General. I, I, I just want to express a note of personal thanks from the staff 
of WHO and all of the agencies who benefited from these funds. Uh, this time last year was a very, very difficult time. Funding was very sparse. Everyone was reacting in, in different ways. Uh, the creation of the fund and the fact that uh, companies and, and, and institutions and individuals, people out there, just reached into their pocketbooks and put money into this response and provided a vital lifeline for many organizations. It drove the first responses of WFP in setting up the, the, the air transport system. It supported UNICEF in putting their first support into supporting children around the world. It supported UNHCR and uh, UNRWA in protecting refugees, not just WHO. Um, and it made a huge difference to the work we were doing on, on things that you said, Sunil, like oxygen, on specific things that we could do to save lives uh, at country level. So, uh, you know, th these funds mattered. Uh, your funds mattered. Um, and we hope we put them to the best possible use. And we will ensure that we will continue to do so in collaboration with uh, the UN Foundation. And thanks to our colleagues there. And we hope with the advent of the WHO Foundation that we will go from strength to strength. But your, your funding mattered. It made a difference. And we'd like to thank you and thank the Director General because it was Tedros. I can't tell you the number of times in the last year and having been around here uh, in various forms and, you know, for many, many years and, and back and forth. I've seen many times in this organization when innovative ideas in the middle of a crisis aren't taken on board. It's too complicated. We don't have time. It won't work. The number of things we have done in this organization in creating with partners the, the, the UN supply chain system, which has delivered over a billion items with many agencies working together, the ACT Accelerator, COVAX, the Solidarity Response Funds, none of this, none of this would have happened without leadership that was open to innovation, driving change, willing to look at that crazy idea and actually allow people to make it happen. Um, and uh, I think it's another reflection of the style and type of leadership we've all experienced in the last year, which seeks to reach out, create and leverage partnership around the world to make WHO a central actor in supporting and facilitating the work of others and not doing everything itself. And this has been part of WHO's transformation. So it's also an opportunity because I, 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 in, in, in honesty and in directness, sometimes big organizations aren't innovative at their core. They don't like new ideas, and in a sense, they kill new ideas. The organization I'm working in now generates a demand for these ideas and wants to innovate, and it's a fundamental shift in the way this organization has operated, and we wouldn't have the Solidarity Response Fund without that style of management. So thank you, DG, and thank you to all who made it work. Well, that leaves me to give to the final words to Dr. Tedros. Thank you. My life is easier now. I endorse what uh, Elizabeth said, Anil, <laughs> and my general uh, Mike. I think it has all been said. Uh, but it all comes to um, our staff uh, who are bringing new ideas, as Mike said, crazy ideas every single day. Uh, and the change we have introduced in the last three years it, it, it's amazing. Looking back, I even get surprised. So probably the message is to our colleagues, please continue bringing new ideas, crazy ideas, uh, to change our organization so we can serve humanity better and save uh, lives. And of course, the immediate is ending this, this pandemic. So thank you so much again to all who have joined today and uh, see you on Friday. Thank you, Christian. You're listening to a podcast from therightdoctors.com. We bring insights from the world's best medical minds to audiences worldwide. The Right Doctors is a Google Launchpad digital health startup and is a knowledge partner of choice for medical conferences, CME, specialty journals, and scientific events from the field of medicine. If you like this podcast, Share it with your friends and visit our website, www.thereyedoctors.com.